Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. I hope you're well. My name is Nick Holmes and in this episode we're starting a whole new mini-series called The Fall of Constantinople. And this first episode is called Byzantium, the Dying Empire. So why are we looking at Byzantium again? Well, on the one hand, the Crusades are of course now over. But on the other hand, the intense medieval conflict between Islam and Christianity is far from over. I think of the Crusades as really being the attempts to conquer and then hold the Holy Land. So that's beginning in 1095 with the First Crusade and lasting until Outremer, as the Crusader states in the Holy Land were called, was finally destroyed by the Mamluks, as you've heard in a previous episode in 1291. But that certainly wasn't the end of what contemporaries regarded as the Crusades. And although, as we've discussed in previous episodes, the religious zeal of the First Crusade had pretty much gone by the 14th century, there was still a state of intense conflict between Christianity and Islam, and plenty of calls by various popes for Crusades. And there was a very good reason for that, because by the the 14th century Islam was clearly winning. Outremer was no more and a new champion of Islam, this time the Ottoman Turks, had crossed the Bosphorus, which not even the great Islamic caliphates of the 7th and 8th centuries had achieved and the Ottomans were advancing into the heart of Europe. In the last episode we heard how a really large army drawn from an alliance of European countries and called a crusade fought and lost to the Ottoman Turks at the Battle of Nicopolis in 1396. This was followed by the Battle of Varna in 1444, when a Hungarian-Polish army, sponsored by the Pope, who again called it a crusade, was again defeated by the Ottomans. In 1448, the Hungarians were massively defeated by the Ottomans at the Second Battle of Kosovo. So that leads us to this new series, because with most of the Balkans under their control, the Ottomans now turned to Constantinople, once the greatest Christian city in the world, but now the beleaguered capital of Byzantium. And I'll tell the story of how Byzantium put up one last heroic stand to save their city. It's an amazingly exciting story, and it was in many ways a turning point in history. Indeed, many historians see it as marking the end of the Middle Ages. So, without further ado, I'll read from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful book called The Fall of Constantinople. As I've mentioned before, Stephen Runciman was one of the most distinguished British historians of the 20th century. He died in in 2000 and his books on the Crusades and Byzantium are still in print and adored by many people including myself. Indeed I was lucky enough to meet him a long time ago when I was studying Byzantine history and I've always felt that he had a great gift for being able to bring history alive. So here we go, hope you enjoy it. On Christmas Day in the year 1400, King Henry IV of England gave a banquet in his palace of Eltham. His purpose was not only to celebrate the Holy Festival, he wished also to do honour to a distinguished guest. This was Manuel II Paleologus, Emperor of the Greeks, as most Westerners called him, though some remembered that he was the true Emperor of the Romans, and today we would call him Emperor of the Byzantines. He had travelled through Italy and had paused at Paris, where King Charles VI of France 
had redecorated a wing of the Louvre to house him and where the professors at the Sorbonne had been delighted to meet a monarch who could argue with them with as much learning and subtlety as they themselves commanded. In England, everyone was impressed by the dignity of his demeanour and by the spotless white robes that he and his courtiers wore. But for all his high titles, his hosts were moved to pity for him, for he had come as a beggar in a desperate search for help against the infidel who encompassed his empire. To the lawyer Adam of Usk, who was working at King Henry's court, it was tragic to see him there. I reflected, Adam wrote, how grievous it was that this great Christian prince should be driven by the Saracens from the furthest east to these furthest western islands to seek aid against them. O God, he added, what dost thou now, ancient glory of Rome? Indeed, the ancient Roman Empire had shrunk to very little. Manuel was the lawful heir of Augustus and of Constantine, but many centuries have passed since the emperors residing at Constantinople could command the allegiance of the Roman world. To the West, they had become mere lords of the Greeks. The greatest crisis had come in 1204 when the Fourth Crusade, lured by the ambition of its leaders, by the jealous greed of their Venetian allies, and by the resentment that every Westerner now felt against the Byzantine Church, turned against against Constantinople and captured and sacked it, setting up a Latin empire on its ruins. This crusade of 1204 put an end to the old East Roman Empire as a supernational state. After half a century of exile at Nicaea in northwestern Asia Minor, the Byzantine authorities re-entered Constantinople and the Latin Empire collapsed. A new era of greatness seemed to be at hand, but the empire restored by Michael Palaeologus was no longer the dominant power in the Christian East. It retained something of its old mystical prestige. Constantinople was still new Rome, the hallowed historical capital of the Orthodox Christendom. The emperor was still, at least in Eastern eyes, the Roman emperor. But in reality, he was only one prince among others equally or more powerful. There were other Byzantine rulers. To the east, there was the Empire of Trebizond, the empire of the great Comnenus, enriched by its silver mines and by the trade that came along the age-old route from Tabriz and further Asia. In Epirus, there was the despotate of the princes of the House of Angelus, at one time rivals of the Nicaean Byzantines in the race to recapture the capital, but soon now to fade into unimportance. In the Balkans were Bulgaria and Serbia. Each, in turn, would dominate the peninsula. There were Frankish lordships and Italian colonies all over the Greek mainland and islands. To oust the Venetians from Constantinople, the Byzantines had called in the Genoese, who had to be rewarded, and now the Genoese colony of Pera, or Galata, just across the Golden Horn, had stolen most of the trade of the capital. There were dangers all around. In Italy, there were potentates eager to avenge the fall of the Latin Empire. Slav princes in the Balkans yearned for the imperial title of emperor. In Asia, the Turks for a while had been quiet. Indeed, without this, Byzantium could not have survived. But they were soon now to revive under the leadership of a dynasty of brilliant chieftains, Osman and his Ottoman successors. The restored Byzantine Empire, with complicated commitments in Europe and a constant threat from the West, needed more money and soldiers than it possessed. It economised on the eastern frontier until it was too late, and the Ottoman Turks had broken through its defences. 
disillusion set in. The 14th century was for Byzantium a period of political disaster. For some decades, it seemed likely that the great Serbian kingdom would absorb the whole empire. The provinces were devastated by the revolt of a mercenary band called the Catalan Company. There was a long series of civil wars begun by personal and dynastic quarrels at the court in Constantinople, which in was embittered with social and religious differences. The Emperor John V, Paleologus, who reigned for 50 years from 1341 to 1391, was dethroned no less than three times, once by his father-in-law, once by his son and once by his grandson, though in the end he died on the throne. There were also ruinous outbreaks of plague. The Black Death in 1347, striking at the height of the Byzantine Civil War, carried off at least a third of the empire's population. The Turks took advantage of the troubles in Byzantium and the Balkans to cross into Europe and to penetrate further and further until by the end of the 14th century, the Ottoman Sultan's armies had reached the Danube and Byzantium was entirely encircled by his dominions. All that was left of the Byzantine Empire was Constantinople itself and a few towns strung along the Marmora coast of Thrace and the Black Sea coast as far as Mesembria. But against this background of political and economic decline, there sprang up a cultural life more eager and more productive than had been known at any other time in Byzantine history. Artistically and intellectually, the Paleologan era was outstanding. The mosaics and frescoes of the early 14th century in the church of the Cora at Constantinople show a vigour a freshness and a beauty that makes Italian work of the period look primitive and crude. Work of a similar quality was produced elsewhere in the capital and at Thessalonica, but art of such splendour was costly to execute. Money began to run short. In 1347, it was noticed that the jewels in the diadems used for the coronation of John VI and his empress were really made of glass. By the end of the century, though minor works of art were still produced, it was only in the provinces at Mistra in the Peloponnese or on Mount Athos that new churches were being built and they were thriftily decorated. Intellectual life, however, which was less dependent on financial backing, lasted brilliantly. The University of Constantinople had been refounded at the end of the 13th century by a great minister, Theodore Metatikes, a man of fine taste and learning to whose patronage the decoration of the Cora Church had been due. But despite the brilliance of its artists and scholars. Constantinople, by the close of the 14th century, was a melancholy dying city. The population, which with that of the suburbs had numbered about a million in the 12th century, had shrunk now to no more than 100,000 and was still shrinking. The suburbs across the Bosphorus were in Turkish hands. Pera, across the Golden Horn, was a Genoese colony. Of the suburbs along the Thracian shores of the Bosphorus and the Marmora, once studded with splendid villas and rich monasteries, only a few villages were left clustering round some ancient churches. The city itself, within its 14 miles of encircling walls, had even in its greatest days been full of parks and gardens dividing the various quarters. But now many quarters had disappeared and fields and orchards separated those that remained. The Moroccan explorer Ibn Battuta in the mid-14th century counted 13 distinct little villages within the city walls. To the Spanish traveller González de Clevillo in the first years of the 
15th century was astounding that so huge a city should be so full of ruins. And the Frenchman Bertrandon de la Broquière a few years later was aghast at its emptiness. Another traveller, Perrault Tafour in 1437, remarked on its sparse and poverty-stricken population. In many districts, you would have thought that you were in the open countryside with wild roses blooming in the hedgerows in spring and nightingales singing in the copses. At the southeast end of the city, the buildings of the old imperial palace were no longer inhabitable. The last Latin emperor in his extremity after selling most of the city's holy relics to the French king St. Louis and before selling his son and heir to the Venetians had stripped the lead off all the roofs and disposed of them for cash. Neither the Byzantine emperor Michael Palaeologus nor any of his successors had ever had enough money to spare to restore them. Only a few of the churches were maintained within their grounds, such as the Nea Basilica of Basil I and the Church of the Mother of God at the Pharos. Nearby, the vast Hippodrome was crumbling. The young men of the nobility only used the arena as a polo ground. Across the square, the patriarchal palace still contained the patriarch's offices, but he no longer ventured to reside there. Only the great cathedral of the holy wisdom of God, St. Sophia, which still stands today, was still splendid. Its upkeep was a special and heavy charge on the state revenues. The main street that ran along the central ridge of the city from the Carisian Gate, the Adrianople Gate of today, to the Old Palace was dotted fitfully with shops and houses and was dominated by the vast Cathedral of the Holy Apostles, which no longer exists. But that huge building was, at this time, in poor repair. Along the Golden Horn, the villages were closer together and more populous, especially at either end. At Blakenai, the emperor now had his palace, the Venetians had a prosperous quarter down by the harbour, and there were streets allotted to other Western traders from Ancona, Florence and Catalonia. There were warehouses and wharves along the shore and bazaars in the area where the great Turkish bazaar still stands today. But each district was separate, many of them surrounded by a wall or a palisade even. On the southern slopes of the city, looking towards the Marmora, the villages were small. At Studion, where the land walls came down to the Marmora, the buildings of the University and of the Patriarchal Academy were grouped round the ancient church of St John and its historic monastery with its fine library. To the east of it, there were a few wharves at Samathia. There was still a few fine mansions and monasteries and nunneries scattered throughout the city, you might still see richly clad lords and ladies riding or carried in litters through the city, though it grieved the French visitor de la Broquière to see how small was the escort that accompanied the lovely Empress Maria as she rode from the Church of the Holy Wisdom to the Imperial Palace. There was still merchandise in the bazaars and on the wharves and Venetian or Slav or Muslim merchants who preferred to do business in the old city rather than with the Genoese at Galata across the Horn. There was still a yearly inflow of pilgrims coming mainly from Russia to admire the churches and the relics that they contained. The state still maintained hostels to house them together with such hospitals and orphanages as it could now afford. 
The only other important city left to the empire was Thessalonica. It kept an air of greater prosperity. It was still the chief port of the Balkans. Its annual fair was still the meeting place of merchants from all nations. Within its smaller area, there was less emptiness and less decay. But it never fully recovered from troubles in the mid-14th century when it was held for some years by popular revolutionaries known as the Zealots, who destroyed many palaces, merchant houses and monasteries before they were suppressed. This pitiful remnant of the Byzantine Empire was the heritage that passed to the Emperor Manuel II in 1391. He saw the political need for help from the West. The Crusade of 1396, which set out blessed by two rival popes to perish owing to the folly of its leaders at the great battle of Nicopolis on the Danube, was, it is true, a response to the supplications of the King of Hungary rather than to those of the Byzantine Emperor, but the French Marshal Boussicot came in answer to his appeals to Constantinople itself in 1399 with a few troops, though too few to make any difference. The Emperor Manuel spent several years trying to raise help from the West, but he had to hurry home in 1402 on the news that the Ottoman Sultan was marching against Constantinople. However, his city was saved before he returned when Timur the Mongol attacked the Turkish dominions in the east, but the relief given to Byzantium by Sultan Bayezid's defeat by the Mongols at Ankara could not restore the dying Byzantine Empire. The power of the Ottoman princes was crippled, but only for a while. Dynastic quarrels kept them from aggression for two decades, and when, in 1423, Sultan Murad II marched against Constantinople, he had to raise the siege almost at once because of family intrigues and rumours of rebellion. But the Byzantine Emperor Emmanuel could take little advantage of the problems that the Ottomans had. He only won back a few towns in Thrace. Had all the powers of Europe been able at once to make a coalition against the Ottoman Turks, the menace might have been ended. But coalitions cannot be formed without time and goodwill, and both were lacking. The Genoese, fearful for their trade, hastened both to send an embassy to Timur the Mongol and to provide ships to transport the defeated Turkish soldiers from Asia across to Europe. The Venetians, fearful of being outwitted by the Genoese, instructed their colonial authorities to observe strict neutrality. The papacy, in the throes of a great schism, could not give a lead. The lay powers of the West remembered the disastrous battle at Nicopolis, and each of them had distractions nearer at hand. The king of Hungary, believing that the Turks would no longer now threaten him, was plunging into intrigues in Germany, from which he was to emerge as Western emperor. Constantinople was seen as being in no immediate danger. Why should anyone bother about it now? This optimism would soon prove fatal. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, as usual, I'd be delighted if you wanted to subscribe, recommend it to a friend or leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear more about the rise of the Ottoman Turks as they prepared to make their great assault on Constantinople.